This is a very different kind of series than what we're used to preaching. We kind of took a risk and said, do we really want to do this? Do we want to go there? We're, we're trying it, and I think it's been good. I want to give you a fair warning today. It's going to get weird, okay? And if you weren't here last week, today's message is kind of a continuation of last week's message, so you may want to go online. I'd highly recommend that you go on our website and listen if you missed that message. We're exploring the nature and identity of the God of the Bible. We're attempting to strip away preconceived ideas about who our culture has believed that God to be. And kind of the first thing that we ran into last week is the word God itself in the Bible. The word in the Bible, in the Old Testament anyway, that actually gets translated to God is the word Elohim. And first of all, it's a plural word. It means more than one unless otherwise specified in the text. The word is used to describe virtually any being that occupies the spiritual realm. So, first Samuel. Samuel's ghost is called Elohim. The heavenly hosts are called Elohim. Angels and demons are called Elohim. God is called an Elohim. It might be better translated simply as spiritual being. But we also learn that in the Bible, contrary to what we might have grown up believing, there are many Elohim and many different kinds of Elohim. But we also learn that there is a particular God, a particular Elohim who is supreme over the rest. A God who created the heavens and the earth, all life on the earth, including human beings and all other Elohim slash spiritual beings slash lower G gods. He is the only uncreated one. So if you think about the technical definition of monotheism, the belief that only one God exists, that is not the Bible's definition of monotheism. In fact, there are few, if any, religions in the world today that would actually hold to that strict definition. But in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there are in fact many gods, but there is none beside Yahweh. There is none deserving of our devotion, our allegiance, or our worship, only Yahweh. God created a human family. He also created a divine family. He commissioned both of them and told them to rule, reflecting his image and his characteristics in the world in the way they rule. One family is given dominion over what we would call the physical realm, the other over the spiritual heavenly realms. Psalm 89, 5 through 7 says, The heavens praise your wonders, Yahweh, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. So Yahweh, God, sits enthroned, surrounded by a council of heavenly beings. And they're often referred to as the sons of God or sons of Elohim, often referred to as the sun, moon, and stars, as they're pointed to as signs or symbols of what is represented by those lights. They're often referred to as rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, especially in the New Testament. They're called the congregation or the assembly of the holy ones. And Bible scholars kind of all whittle it into one theme they refer to it as the divine council. The divine council. So basically, God runs the world 
through a staff team, a council. He's depicted as a kind of commander-in-chief with a host of beings under him. And occasionally, we actually get windows into what this looks like. For example, there's a strange story in 1 Kings, where there's an 1 Kings chapter 22, where there's an evil king named Ahab who's taken dominion over Israel. He's a murderer. He's a bad dude. And um, God is trying to figure out, hmm, how should we get rid of this guy? And he pulls his counsel together. And it says, the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And a little backstory. The question is, Ahab's trying to decide, do we go and attack the town of Ramoth Gilead or not? And there are false prophets who are saying, yeah, go do it. God's on your side. Yahweh's for you. He'll defend you. Well, in the council, it says one spiritual being said one thing and another said another. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Like, Whoa, that's, that's kind of weird, right? There's several passages like this. In Job chapter 1, Daniel, Ezekiel, we get windows into this divine counsel. So what we see is that God runs the world through delegated authorities. Beings that make up a divine counsel. And these beings, they can do things. They can sway people in their thoughts. They can make things happen in the world. So what's their story? Today, I want to attempt to use the time that we have to blast through some scriptures that piece together what I've titled the story of gods and men. But I don't want to simply tell the story. I want you to be informed. How does the spiritual realm influence our world? What are they up to? Do we see evidence of their activity around us? And on a personal note, I have to say that over the course of studying this material, my perspective on prayer has changed quite a bit. And the way I pray has changed. And I want to share that with you. And so that's coming. So we've established that God chose to rule the world through delegated human and divine authorities. We also don't have to look very hard at our world to see that things are pretty chaotic. There's a lot of evil, a lot of violence, a lot of injustice in the world today. So what went wrong? Well, if you've been in church a while, you probably know the story. There's a, a human rebellion that took place in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent tempted Eve and then Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. But there's also a parallel story about a divine rebellion that took place, and it's described in Genesis 6. So, are you ready for this? Genesis 6, 1 through 4. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not, shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These are the mighty men who were of old, 
the men of renown. I told you it was going to get weird, right? Heavenly beings came down and slept with women and produced superhuman offspring. Uh, I have to confess, I've, I've had a lot of struggles with this passage and others like it. Kind of, I had one viewpoint and then there's like another viewpoint. Don't go to YouTube for a viewpoint on this one. There's a lot of rabbit holes, okay? A lot of theories, a lot of literature here. So let's, let's talk about the gist of this passage. What are they doing? What is going on here? It's about power. Okay. It's about seizing the ability to claim a people for themselves in order to rule over people as their gods in place of God. Okay? They're trying to claim an inheritance for themselves in the form of human legacies. Keep the word inheritance in your mind. That's an important word here because it's going to be important. The whole question is, whose inheritance are the peoples of the world? Okay, whose inheritance are the peoples of the world? The language of this passage mirrors the language of Genesis 3 to show that it is a twin fall story. The woman saw that the fruit was good and she took and ate some and gave it to her husband. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good, not attractive, not beautiful, but good. Same exact word. Same word that God uses when he says, and it was good, you know. They decided it was good, and they took, just like the woman took the fruit, they took wives as they pleased. There's a similar parallel thing happening here. The spiritual beings were told to rule over the heavenly realms, the day and the night. Human beings are told to be fruitful and multiply, having dominion ruling over the skies, the land, and the seas. So we seem to have a situation in which people and gods are not happy or satisfied with what they've been given. The serpent said to the woman, if you eat this fruit, you'll be like Elohim, gods knowing good and evil. We tried to be like them. They tried to be like us. So our scripture started with when man began to multiply on the face of the land. Remember, God said, be fruitful and multiply, have dominion, and this is good. Okay, God says this is good. Human beings are expanding their dominion, their rule over the earth through fruitful multiplication. The gods, they want a piece of this pie. So in essence, the deal goes something like this. Give us your children and we'll give you life. Let me explain that a little bit. Views on sex in that culture are kind of different than in our culture. Today, Sexuality is about physical attraction, finding someone you love, and starting a family, and a whole bunch of other perversion things in between. In this culture, it kind of included those things, but sex was very much a symbol of human longevity, the ability to promote and create and sustain a legacy, and it was the closest we could get to reestablishing our immortality because your name and your identity is carried on now through your children. So in pagan temples in Corinth, they had these big phallic symbols carved out of stone that they'd march down the streets and people would essentially worship these things as symbols of human might, 
human reproductivity. It's Mother's Day, and there's some super moms here who have like 18 grandchildren. You'd be a superhero in this culture, okay? You would be blessed, well thought of, extending your lifespan upon the earth. And for all you moms out there, or maybe you would have been moms, you would have loved to be a mom, but for some reason that was impossible, sorry, you're cursed. Your lineage stops. But there is a consolation. That other grandma over there, all the credit goes to her husband. That's the culture that they live in. They give birth to these giant clans of people that are mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. It's hard to know what to make of this. They're symbols of human power and strength. And this is not just in the Bible. What's Hercules? It's like a crossbreed between gods and men, right? Or Nimrod in Genesis 10, this mighty hunter in the face of the Lord, this hero of renown, has wall reliefs from the Assyrian Empire that are up in the museum in London. A mighty hunter who builds Babylon, which happens to be the epicenter of human rebellion against God. So these are these legendary beings that represent the worship of human perfection and strength. Think of the Greek gods. Think of the carvings and and the strength and the physique that are perfectly displayed in them. But when that becomes the ultimate picture of human virtue, what is the result? When my strength and my name are the main thing, the world becomes survival of the fittest. Might makes right. Racism, sexism, class division, nationalism. As the story continues, the world devolves into increased violence and bloodshed. Instead of becoming more like the gods, we become more like the beasts. They said, we'll give you life, superhuman legacies. But God says, my spirit won't abide in man forever. 120 years, that's what you get. It's difficult to know whether he's talking about the lifespan of human beings or the countdown to the flood. There's a lot of debate about that. We don't need to go into that. But the conquest of Canaan, later, these tribes are are named Rephaim, Nephilim are there. Goliath and his brothers are described as the last members of these giant clans. Now, I don't know, you know, like, what's the archaeological evidence that these people actually exist? What is the deal here? This is kind of weird stuff. It's kind of hard to believe. You mean to tell me that spiritual beings cohabitated with human women and bore children? It's like, yeah, I don't know. But we already do believe, if you're a Christian, that the Holy Spirit caused Mary to conceive and give birth to Jesus. So, We're there. I mean, it's not that different. So what we know so far is that there has been a dual rebellion. Human beings trying to become like gods and the gods seeking to have dominion and rule over human beings and inheritance for themselves. And the result is increased violence and corruption on the earth and division. The rebellion hits a fever pitch in the story of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Let's build a tower to the heavens. We can make a name for ourselves. We'll be like gods. We'll create our own Eden in the heavens. 
And so God comes down, confuses the languages of the people, and scatters them throughout the earth. Genesis 10 refers to it as the dividing of the earth, dividing of the peoples. But just as there is a human thing going on here, a twin rebellion also happening in Genesis 3 and 6, so too there is also something spiritual happening at the Tower of Babel story. And we don't really hear much about it until Moses writes about it in Deuteronomy 32. So Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9, says this. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind... Okay, there's no other story in the Bible about God dividing mankind except the Tower of Babel story. Okay? When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what's going on here? At the dividing of mankind, the, the Tower of Babel story supposedly, if that's the right interpretation, Moses is saying that at the dividing of mankind, God basically disinherited the nations from himself and he gave the people groups over to be ruled by other gods as their allotted inheritance. This is what the gods wanted. This is what human beings wanted. As Paul puts it in Romans 1, God gave them over to their evil lusts and desires. So the nations of the world are ruled, the peoples of the world are ruled by allotted rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. The kingdoms of our world have spiritual powers over them that God has given into their hands. But Yahweh's portion, his inheritance, is Israel, his own people. And is it any coincidence that right after the Tower of Babel story, the next story is God extracting one man from among the nations to build a people that would be his very own inheritance, a nation for himself. You also see this pictured in Daniel. There's this strange story where Daniel has been praying. And for 21 days, there's no answer. But then this angel appears to him and he says, we heard your prayer. We got the message. We were on our way. But the prince of Persia held us up and we were detained for 21 days. But then Mikael, Michael, a name which means who is like the Lord. That's my name. There's a lot of pressure. <laughs> Michael came and helped us. He assisted us. And we were able to break free and come to you. We go, what? And in the Exodus story, God tells the, the Israelites, he says, I will go to war, not with Egypt's Pharaoh, not with Egypt's armies. He says, I will go to war with Egypt's gods. Deuteronomy 4.19, we read it last week. 
And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Okay? So in other words, they're not just told not to worship other gods because other gods don't exist, but because those other nations are supposed to be ruled by those other gods, not Israel. But that's not the end of the story. God's plan is to somehow re-inherit the nations out from under the oppressive rule of the other lower G gods. Psalm 82 is very interesting. It's actually a psalm written to those gods. So listen to this. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And here's what he says. How long will you just unjust, judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. He's criticizing the way they rule the nations. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And the psalmist says, arise, O God, Judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nations. God would re-inherit the nations. That's the hope. But things only look more and more hopeless as time goes on. His chosen nation can't stop running after other gods. We talked about the reason why last week. It's not so far removed from us. And Jeremiah 8, 1 through 3 writes, And they, God's people Israel, shall be spread before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved and served, which they have gone after, in which they have sought and worshipped, and they shall not be gathered or buried. They shall be as dung on the surface of the ground. Death shall be preferred to life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family in all the places where I have driven them, declares the Lord of hosts." God's people love and serve other gods. So God eventually gives them over to those gods who utterly devour them. And Yahweh's own people are scattered over the face of the earth. And it looks like whatever hope there was in restoring the earth as God's inheritance through Israel, that light is getting darker and darker and darker. And in Psalm 2, David writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... 
I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The psalmist speaks of the rebellious peoples, nations, kings, and rulers who want to cast all cords and bonds to Yahweh away from them. And the psalmist speaks of a son, a son who will be king, who will ask and be given all the nations of the world as Yahweh's inheritance. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He was spoken of as the word of God made flesh, the son of God, the Messiah, the great son of man, the great I am. He came as a true king. The serpent tempted him in the wilderness and said, if you bow down and worship me, give me yourself, I will give you all the nations of the world as your inheritance. But Jesus resisted. He told Pilate, my kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world fighting for dominion through human might and violence. And wherever Jesus went, spiritual beings started going nuts. They manifested themselves and Jesus was casting them out left and right. Interestingly enough, the word demon comes from the word daimonian, which simply means spiritual being. And another word that is translated from that same word is the word demigod, which is a description of the kinds of human beings that were these crossbreeds that were like superheroes that we go and worship. Those are the dark powers that he's casting out. The powers are doubling down, though. Having scattered Israel among the nations and then occupying the promised land with foreign empires, the pinnacle revelation of the victory of the rebel gods was when the high priest of Israel himself cried out, we have no king but Caesar in the epicenter of the Holy Land. And it seemed as though the only true Israel that was left boiled down to one man now hanging on a cross. Darkness covered the land. And the king allowed himself to be subdued by the powers of gods and men. The light went out. But on the third day, in a dark tomb, a blazing torch ignited, and death itself, the chief threat and primary weapon of the rebel powers, was destroyed. And in Acts chapter 2, pillars of fire, like the one that led God's people out from the oppressive gods of Egypt in Exodus, now came down and rested on the heads of Jesus' disciples, filling them with the Holy Spirit. And they went out and they preached, and thousands were baptized. 
And those who were baptized went out to the dark nations of the world. And all of a sudden, just when it looked like the darkness had prevailed and the gods had claimed their dominion right within their own realm, little pinpricks of light started turning on. And God began to re-inherit the nations right out from under the dominion of the gods. And they began to realize that in the moment they had achieved victory, they had signed their own death warrant. A new nation, a new Israel was born. And that nation would not be defined by divide and conquer. Those are the patterns of the nations of the world. Instead, as Paul writes, Jesus had put to death the barriers of hostility in his own flesh. His new nation is not defined by human might, physical borders, language barriers, or religious barriers even. In this new nation, the slave and the master come to the table as one. The Jew and the Gentile are now one. Male and female are now one. In this kind of a nation, the power of the gods is destroyed because that's what they cling to. That's how they define an inheritance for themselves, a people for themselves. Let's, let's talk about gender identity. Let's talk about nationalism. Let's talk about politics. Let's raise up one thing as supreme and pit it against the other. And in this way, they subdue the nations of the world. And all of a sudden, that power is slipping right out from under their grasp. In Ephesians, Paul refers to this as a great mystery that was hidden for all time, hidden from people and hidden from gods, but is now revealed in Christ. In Ephesians 3, 6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Pause for a second. Did you ever wonder why Paul, have you ever read the New Testament and, and notice how much he talks about Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles, male, female, slave and master, they're all one. What's his deal? Is he all about unity? Yeah, he's all about unity. Is he all about getting along, people having peace among each other? Yeah, yeah, but that's not the point. The point is that Paul knows when he brings Jew and Gentile together in Christ, he's destroying the dominion of spiritual powers and re-inheriting the nations for God. So he says, skipping down to verse 9, that this mystery has been hidden for ages in God, the God who created all things, so that, verse 10, through the church... The many-sided, manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So Paul's big on unity. He's willing to go to Jerusalem with a gift from the Gentile churches to the church in Jerusalem who's in poverty and starving, not because he cares about starvation, 
but because the oneness shared between the Jewish and the Gentile churches expressed in this gift is worth dying for. He's destroying the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Just as Psalm 2 had predicted, God is re-inheriting the nations through Jesus, out from under the grip of the rebel gods who are desperately trying to maintain ground. They are feverishly trying to hold on to their oppressive control over their inheritance. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has now been given to me. This is the son who would sit on the throne and ask and all dominion, all the nations would be given to him as his inheritance. Go therefore, he says, and make disciples of all nations. And then Jesus says in Revelation 2, 25 through 29, he says, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. He's quoting Psalm 2. Even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Jesus is quoting Psalm 2 and he's saying that that son who will ask and be given the nations as an inheritance, is now saying to you and me, that son is saying to you and me that you get to share that. You will sit with him. You share a status in Christ of receiving dominion over the nations of the world, being given the morning star. I can't even begin to understand what that means, except there's something kind of divine about it, knowing what sun, moon, and stars usually means in Scripture. And this is how God restores all things to himself. Psalm 89, he said, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. The gods are losing their inheritance. And their role of having authority over the nations is going to be stripped from them and given to you and me. So today, they are desperate. Is this real? Or is it just a way that the ancient world talked about the cosmos? If it is, how do they operate? Divide and conquer. So when you see nationalism, racism, social class, division, religious oppression, prejudice, 
when you see people getting up in arms about gender identity or politics, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, any division that results from humans trying to rise to a position of supremacy, you're seeing the evidence of those rulers and authorities. How? How is it that a nation so advanced as Germany, through the Third Reich, could decide that it's good to exterminate a whole nation of people, a whole people group? I watched a, a documentary on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they had footage from, uh, from Hitler and a speech that he was giving. And I was blown away because I didn't realize the oceans of people he was speaking to. So many people. And he stands up there and boldly says, when we have gotten rid of the Jews, and he starts making all these promises, how is it that so many people could buy into that? And is it any coincidence that it happens to be the Jews. Or in scripture, that the gods themselves would lure Yahweh's people to be ruled by other gods who would ask them to burn their own children alive on their altars. And that you happen to see this in archeology span in tribes all over the world. Give me your inheritance, give me your children, and I'll give you life. Or tribal animism. I remember talking with John Douglas about this in depth, about the way that spiritual systems and animism in other parts of the world enslave cultures. Why is it that it looks almost identical in Africa as it does in South America? Coincidence? Anthropology? Maybe there's more. But what Jesus is saying to us, what he says to you and me, is that because of your position, you have a voice, you have a place to stand in that divine council. I was walking with my friend Seth this week and he said, Mike, do me a favor. He said, when you end this sermon, could you end it with prayer? And I said, okay, why? And he said, because what we're talking about here, what the scripture says is that what Jesus has done for you, what he's done for me, is he's bought you a voice, a seat, a place in the stadium of the gods. Which means that when you make an appeal, it arises, it goes up, and it is heard. Heard. 
And there are desperate, desperate voices in that council who would say, is anyone going to listen to this moron? Is anyone going to actually give them any credibility? They don't see. They don't understand. And Jesus says, they will be heard. Be quiet. I will hear them. My kids had a baseball game on Monday, and uh, <laughs> they're, in, uh, they're in senior minors, or no, they're in uh, little league minors, and uh, we played a team that was pretty tough, and the coach is like one of the toughest coaches, and it was funny because he, uh, he said at the beginning, we, we were talking, and he was like, you know, it's, in this league, it's not really about winning, it's about uh, Um, I'm sorry. I need to take a minute because um, sometimes every once in a while when I preach, my, uh, my heart goes into these palpitations, especially if I've had coffee and not, a much, not much to eat. So I'm trying to like catch my breath and I feel like I'm distracted. And so... This is really weird. It's never happened before. But I need to sit down for a second. And uh, it's normal, so don't go, like, calling the ambulance or anything like that. But I need to take a minute. So, you know, maybe there's something going on here. So maybe you take a minute and just pray for that. And then we could continue. Does that sound good? Totally awkward. Um, But, yes, I'm going to sit down here for a second. weak, but he is strong. You know, um, years and years ago, I came up and was prayed for before going to the Mayo Clinic um, because of a heart condition I was born with. I was actually born with several things, and um, the one that was a concern turned out not to be concerned, but ACC had prayed for me um, that I would be healed from that, and what happened as a result is that ever since that moment that ACC prayed, those palpitations that I had was pretty normal for me had, uh, after that, for years, they had completely disappeared because of the prayers, I believe, of this church. And they've come and gone like little bits here and there, but never like that, just right in the middle of a Sunday, just like that, all of a sudden. So, um, didn't plan that sermon illustration. <clears throat> Let me tell you a story. We're probably going to go over time. Sorry. Uh, So we had a baseball game, and I could get in trouble for this, but uh, the other team had a really good coach, so we were really intimidated. And we went in there, and we we started playing, and and beforehand he was saying, uh, you know, it's not about winning in this league. It's just about the kids learning how to play baseball and having fun and everything. And uh, we were... You know, that was great, but then we started, our, te- our team happened to do um, abnormally well, okay, in, in this particular game. And uh, we were way ahead, and you could see the intensity rising for this other coach. And he started getting really uptight, and uh, we, 
we got to a point where he, they caught up pretty close. They were within two runs, and it was the last inning. There were two outs. And there's something you can do if you're a coach, coaching minors. And uh, some coaches think it's great. Others are kind of like, you know, that's not cool. That's just not cool. Because what it banks on is the reality that you know that 50-50% of the time a minors league pitcher who tries to throw a runner out at home is not going to make it. Like they're not going to throw it or catch it accurately, okay? So, so there's a rule that basically says if you have a runner on third, you can steal home anytime as long as that pitcher is not on the mound and the catcher is not in a position ready to catch it. So this is like every time because the pitcher runs up after he throws it. And so what, what the coach is doing Okay, as, as in desperation, he really wants those last two runs as much as possible. As soon as the pitcher's got his back to him, he's like, go, go, go. And, and the kids are like, really? You know, and they're, they're kind of they're hesitating. It's like, you got to listen to me. When I say go, you got to go. Okay, you got to, and then and they're, they're like, what? And then so, so they got one run off on us that way. And then, uh, we're watching for it. The kids are trying to run down these third base runners. It's this big battle. And, uh, and then finally, our, our pitcher struck out the last batter while we were still run, one run ahead. And everyone's like, oh, you know, just big deal. But I feel like that's the deal. What Jesus has said is that you have a seat. You have a voice in the divine council. And that there are a lot of coaches out there. And they've got their players. And uh, when you walk into a coffee shop or a workplace and you see that individual sitting there muttering to themselves or that one person, there's, there's a coach there that's watching you. And they're going, do they see us? All right, go, go. And they're taking ground. They're taking ground. They're desperate to take ground because they know they're losing the game. They know that their dominion is slipping out from under them, and God has said, you will die like men. And so they're desperately trying to win whatever they can, and they steal home whenever we can, whenever they can. And whenever we walk into an environment like that and just kind of doing this, walking along, the pitcher back to his mound with not a care in the world for who might be on third base, the enemy gains ground. So what I want to do to end this message is I want to take a moment and I want us to first change our perspective on prayer. When you raise something up to God, there is an appeal going before the divine council. Jesus has guaranteed your words will be heard. He doesn't guarantee your prayer will be answered the way you might want it to be. But he says it will be heard. And when you see that person muttering to themselves or you see that individual sitting there sipping their coffee that God seems to have drawn your attention to, you can lift them up and you will be heard. You can pray for God to extract them out of the dominion of darkness. And your voice will be heard. So today, the way I want to end this message is by being the church that is the manifold wisdom of God that Paul talks about and by doing that very thing. 
And I want to take five minutes or so, and I want us to spend some time in prayer, to take that opportunity to ask God what he would reveal to you that you would bring before the council because Jesus guarantees you it will be heard. So I want you to take a couple minutes, just a minute, and ask what does God bring to mind? And in the next five minutes, if you feel led, um, feel free to pray that out. And we in this assembly will agree with you before the council. We always take a risk when we do that. People say some awkward things. God's bigger than our awkwardness. I think he just showed us that. But let's do that. So let's take a minute and bring your requests, bring your prayers, your intercession to God. And if you feel so led, speak boldly so that we can all hear and agree. Go ahead, let's pray. Father, I'll open it up. Thank you for my own thorn in the flesh that continually reminds me I am no superhero. That in my weakness, you are strong. That this could have halted the message, but instead you turned it into an opportunity to pray. And God, you are winning the war, but battles are being won by other powers who are desperate to gain ground, like that coach trying to steal home as soon as our backs are turned. So God, now today, reveal to us the people, the systems, the governments, the things that we're clinging to, and elevating ourselves and pitting ourselves against one another, reveal the principalities and powers and give us boldness to speak out. And thank you that we're free. And you've brought us out of darkness into your marvelous light and made a way for us to stand and restored us to a position. We must sound like idiots a lot of times in the heavenly realms but you still hear us. Thank you.